views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to announce a settlement has been arrived at between our union and Minocom Mining. If it is ratified, work could resume on Mars within 48 hours. Yes. Mr. Atwater, there have been rumors circulating here today that this agreement really benefits the company more than it does the miners' union. That it is, in fact, a shotgun agreement. The agreement is being reviewed right now by our rank and file. The indication is that it will pass unanimously. Those rumors are being spread by those who don't have the union or its members' interest to heart. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 16, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no. Not right wing. Mm. Just right. That's right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Wow, do we have a pile of topics today. I don't even have a list of them all yet. A lot to talk about. Get on with my period. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 519-661-3600 is the number you can call to join us in our conversation. Uh, you know, the shotgun wedding between certain businesses and certain unions will be the underlying theme of my look at wage parity between police and firefighters in the city of London. And that'll be during the final quarter of our show today. And at the same time, I'll be looking at London Mayor Joe Fontana's 0% tax increase promise and how we could even cut taxes if we had the political will to do it. I'm all over the world today, Bob. Starting here in London, I have uh, Electromotive Epilogue. Um, Is it patriotic to be nationalistic? Uh, Interpol, Interpolitics. Mm -hmm. And finally, how to put out a grease fire. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like that one? Yeah, you don't want any of them, especially in your kitchen. Anyway, Electromotive Diesel, last week we spent a considerable amount of time on it. And rightly so, because it's such a hot topic here in the city. So I've just got a few more thoughts that I'd like to uh, convey regarding it. It's a continuing saga. It's nearing its end as the union and Caterpillar negotiate a severance package. They're still under that. Word from negotiations is that Caterpillar is prepared to give the workers more than they're legally required to give. And of course, it's not clear where the source of this empathy lies. Is it that Caterpillar is a much more benevolent employer than the union has led on? Or does it perhaps have to do with the threats by the union that if they don't pony up a severance, which is more than their due, to atone for their apparent sin of being profitable, the workers, who are still on the picket line, will occupy the plant and hold it and the few locomotives still stationed there hostage? I suspect it's the latter. You know, it tells you something when they're still picketing after it's all over. Uh, and it <laughs> well, was, they get paid for picketing. Yeah, isn't? well, that's true. But, you know, during the past week, I've been hearing Tim Carey make s- certain comments in the media, and he's expressing his surprise that the company's actually negotiating with him. And, yes. and I was thinking, well, yeah, you got something to negotiate now. And, and Ken Lewenza <laughs> last, last week or so described the negotiators for Caterpillar as emotionless. He probably didn't realize, I think, that he uh, he was inadvertently paying them a compliment. A businessman, a good businessman, is not driven by emotion. He's driven by business, by fact, by reality. 
whatever he, uh, he's negotiating, wage rates, or in this case a severance package, if he lowers himself to the level of the union leaders and negotiates with his glands <laughs> rather than his head, he'll lose. Business is as cold as an accountant's spreadsheet, and it has to be that way. It's as clear as that. Any empathy should be for the bottom line which has to be presented to the shareholders, not to workers who are willing, who willingly refuse to work for them. You know, economics are one part of any argument regarding union business negotiations and standard of living. But if I were to get into a moral argument, which we do more often than not mm -hmm. on this show, I would talk about the immorality of the use of coercion, force, and violence to hold consumers and producers hostage, backed by preferential government legislation and unionized police forces reluctant to uphold the law against violence and force against members of another union or perpetrated by members of another union. I would talk about the morality of companies like Caterpillar, which have given us, in their case, heavy equipment to move the earth and transport goods around the continent, a positive morality. The unions would say that it is they who created these products, when it is the minds of the engineers, the investment professionals who moved the capital, the risk-takers in the head office of Caterpillar who made the decisions affecting the survival of the company, who are directly responsible for the inventions and the goods and the patents. The employees on the shop floor, you know, while they're skilled in certain trades, they're replaceable, as we've seen demonstrated by the rush for the 200 jobs now available in Muncie, Indiana. 4,000-plus applicants queued up for those 200 jobs. Skilled tradesmen out of work, quite willing to work for sixteen fifty an hour. The London worker, on the advice of their union leaders, chose unemployment. Why? To teach big business a lesson. Nothing more. The union leaders never had the individual plant workers' welfare in mind. It was always a struggle of the union movement against business, of the communist shills against capitalists. In the center of the struggle was the worker, the poor worker. A pawn now captured and put to the side of the board. But the union, union leaders don't care. They still have their jobs, and they're still in the game because they have plenty more pawns to play with. Any parting words on Electromotive, Bob? No, I think that's about all you want to say for now, But because yeah, I don't think this issue is going to go away. No. But some of the things you said about unionized uh, police, etc., might touch on my comments in the closing part of the show, so I'll leave uh, until then. Okay. We received correspondence from our Euro correspondent, mm -hmm. Paul Lambert. Um, Paul actually has dual citizenship, and if listeners recall, we talked about dual citizenship a couple of weeks ago, and... Um, I found this... Uh, I was somewhat opposed to it, especially if you're giving an oath of allegiance, and that was my focus. And Paul has dual citizenship, Canadian-Swedish. He's actually from London, I believe, isn't he, Bob? Yes, he's from here. Yeah. Yeah. And he listens to the show all the time, and uh, Paul, if you're listening, thank you for your reply. Um, I had asked Paul the question, do you suppose that the nationalism expressed in Italy and Germany during the war dulled any sense of national pride in any in European nation? Perhaps they saw such nationalism as the problem which contributed to the war, and when they rejected nationalism, patriotism was also lost. And uh, he responded with a very, very intellectually honest and well-considered opinion. Yeah, it had me reconsidering a few things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, he also talked to me about uh, his dual citizenship, but I, don't, I won't get it, that into that today. But I'll talk about nationalism and patriotism. Yeah, that was the that was the part that really interested me. Mm -hmm. So here's what Paul Lambert had to say: "Quote: 
It would be easy to reflect on my observations of what the people around me think of patriotism and nationalism, but I was inspired to look deeper into the history of the matter and get a better understanding of why we are where we are with regard to these phenomena. Firstly, just to make sure that we're speaking the same language, when I say patriotism, I'm really talking about an emotion. I'm thinking of a sense of pride in one's country and a happiness to live there. It can manifest itself in many ways, not all of them necessarily loaded with political or ideological baggage. Patriotism does not at all necessarily mean that one dislikes other countries. I can imagine that people living in most, but not all, countries can probably have a rational sense of patriotism for one reason or another. Nationalism, in its broadest generality, is the idea that people belong to the same nation and they should live in a common political entity governed by people of that same nation. Aptly enough, aptly enough, the European attitudes toward nationalism vary greatly from one country to another. What is especially interesting are one country's attitudes toward the nationalistic sentiments of other countries. In Sweden, we generally look at Norwegian nationalism very positively, while the same nationalistic sentiment in Sweden is viewed by the same Swedes with suspicion. It must be remembered that in a historical context, nationalism is what created countries such as Germany and Italy, but it also destroyed countries such as the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, and to some extent the Russian Empire, in turn to create still more new countries such as Czechoslovakia, Poland, Finland, Turkey, Israel, Greece, and many others. I think that it was the subsequent political events in each of these countries that would determine, after the fact, the various attitudes toward nationalism as such. Certainly nationalism has both positive and negative manifestations. Indeed, both Nazism at one extreme and Zionism at the other were both nationalistic movements. As to the negative sentiment towards nationalism, this was and is mostly propagated by the political left especially in Sweden. We're quite right that Nazi Germany's, Germany and fascist Italy served to wreck nationalism in the eyes of many, but I'd not downplay the role of argument from intimidation from the left in how it draws a straight line from any nationalistic sentiment straight to Adolf Hitler. It must be remembered that nationalism is an enormous spanner in the works for Marxists who want people to feel an affinity along class lines which transcend national boundaries. When they found that there were more solidarity between people of the same country, regardless of class, and virtually none between people of the same class but in different countries, it frustrated their efforts. Isn't that a fascinating observation? It is. I've never really considered nationalism and, the view of Marxism before. Yeah. Well, to me, what I was impressed by that was, well, wait a minute, rich and poor don't matter as much as your country, as your nationalism. The poor and the rich identify with each other when it comes to nationalist, nationalistic considerations. Yes. You know, the, the poor Canadian will consider himself Canadian, just as the rich Canadian will before he'll consider himself a member of something else. And he, and he has a sense of community, the rich and the poor, within the same country, rather than a sense of community, say, the poor in Canada with the poor in um, Indonesia. This does not speak well of the European Union, does it? <laughs> no, it, I wonder... if present problems? I'm like, wondering whether or not the European model is... Is even going to survive? I, 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 I don't know. You're going to, you have to create that nationalism for all the countries together, and I don't see that happening. It's, it's not there, is it? Nope. Nor is there a patriotism. 
there's absolutely, from what, from what we're gathering from Paul, uh, there's zero patriotism in uh, most of Europe. They don't, no, they don't I, feel I, a sense I, of love I, for I their think, country. I they... think the French will remain nationalistic towards the French, the English towards the English, yeah. the Germans towards the Germans, and that's perfectly okay in yeah. and of itself. In fact, to do otherwise, I think, will lead to the problems that we've been dealing with, what we call multiculturalism and in the status sense of the word. But European is an artificial construction. I don't think that um, well, if it continues on the way it is, it's going to survive. You see, there's the problem. They're trying to make it a, 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 um, an economic union, right? Yes. When countries aren't about economies alone, you know? No, no, they're about laws. Nations mm -hmm. are about laws. That's right. The left has succeeded, Paul continues, in academic circles in painting an air of suspicion around any manifestation of national pride. So I, I actually like his analysis of this. He's, he's pointing to the actual political spectrum that's at fault here, and it is the left, as it usually is in most of these things, which is counter to what people might think about nationalism. They're thinking nationalism, oh, the right is responsible for making it bad. Well, because they're thinking of Hitler's Hitler again, right? Exactly. That was my but, question but, to Paul. Exactly. Yeah. And the point is that Hitler was a leftist, not a rightist. Of and course. that's where the, the big mistake Nationalist is. socialism. socialism. Come on. <laughs> In 2004, Paul continues, the Swedish National Day, and this is interesting, and we knew this before, the Swedish National Day actually became a holiday only in 2004 after centuries of Sweden being one of the few countries that did not officially celebrate its National Day. Wow, I didn't know that. Mm. Left a sentiment in the parliament and in the media vehemently opposed this. It actually got to a point here that every single expression of national pride had been smeared with the label of racism and Nazism. That even flying a Swedish flag in Sweden on one's own house or in the garden could earn you the ire of your neighbor. In fact, eventually, it was only the admitted racists and neo-Nazis that ended up flying the flag or using any other national symbols. Bravely enough, the one private TV station in Sweden at the time, TV4, decided in the late 90s that it would play the Swedish national anthem at the end of its broadcast day, much like TV stations in the U.S. and Canada do. The rationale was, quite rightly in my opinion, that national pride and patriotism should not be a monopoly of the racists and the neo-Nazis, and that mainstream Swedish society has as much right to their national sim symbols as the despicable types do. Of course, the political left was outraged, having still been sour at TV4 and for private broadcasting in general, being legalized only a couple of years earlier. However, the practice of playing the national anthem remains and is generally regarded as positive. Now, with the growing anti-EU sentiment, there is a renewed interest, even among some on the left, in national pride, however tempered it may have to be. It remains to be seen how this will all play out. Fascinating response. Thank you very much, Paul. You know, I used to say that I, I never was patriotic to a particular nation just because it was a nation. That's when nationalism can become the danger Oh, that yes. we're warned against. Yes, indeed. If I were to be asked that question, I would have to say I'm patriotic to that nation that protects my individual rights and freedoms. If Canada gave one, up protecting your rights and freedoms, you'd be I more care? patriotic to the next country you'd to the next to. country that would do it. That's right. right. As a matter of fact, a lot of Canadians have done exactly right. that. They've and left 
the Europe and the Asia and all that, and they've come here and they're proud Canadians and don't even want to talk about the homeland. When the country ceases to to respect its citizens, don't be surprised if the citizens feel the same way about the government and, the, you know, the nation itself. Exactly. And that, I fear, could be happening in Canada unless we have some kind of a intellectual and moral revolution here. I'm waiting for it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't wait. It ain't going to happen on its own. Anyway, we're going to take a little break here. And speaking of citizenship, here's a great little clip that you found from Casablanca, oh, yeah. followed by... Um, this is President's Analyst, isn't it, Bob, after this Oh, one? what a funny movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it. About, it's about... Uh, I've got it, but I haven't really watched well, it. Well, I can't give it away. If I tell you what it's about, then you'll give oh, no, no, away no. the ending. But okay. it's, it's all about spies. It's a, it's, it's a real silly spoof, but boy, it makes a few <laughs> points. Okay, we'll be back right after this. Rick, uh, this is Major Heinrich Strasser of the Third Reich. How do you do, Mr. Rick? Oh, how do you do? And you already know Herr Heinz of the Third Reich? Please join us, Mr. Rick. We are very honored tonight, Rick. Major Strasser is one of the reasons the Third Reich enjoys the reputation it has today. You repeat Third Reich as though you expected there to be others. Well, personally, Major, I will take what comes. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Unofficially, of course. Make it official if you like. What is your nationality? I'm a drunkard. <laughs> and that makes Rick a citizen of the world. I was born in New York City, if that'll help you, honey. I understand that you came here from Paris at the time of the occupation. There seems to be no secret about that. Are you one of those people who cannot imagine the Germans and their beloved Paris? Not particularly my beloved Paris. Can you imagine us in London? When you get there, ask me. Oh, diplomatist. How about New York? Well, there are certain sections of New York, Major, that I wouldn't advise you to try to invade. Uh-huh. Who do you think will win the war? I haven't the slightest idea. Rick is completely neutral about everything, and that takes in the field of women, too. Hey, excuse me, gentlemen. Your business is politics. Mine is running a saloon. Good evening, Mr. Blaine. Now, don't worry, Dr. Schaefer. Nobody's gonna hurt you. You happen to be a very valuable person. <laughs> You're not musicians, are you? Canadian Secret Service. Canadian spies? <laughs> you think it's fun being a silent, bleeding partner in North America? Cool, lummy. <laughs> Canadian spies? Sullivan, FBR. Okay, all right, I'm sorry, ran away. You can take me back to Washington. Those are not my orders. Oh, really? You mean like you might free? My orders are to kill you. What? Oh. Valentine. Valentine! You got any Magnum 44s? There's some on the boat. Too late for that. I promised Helen I wouldn't work late. Give me your gun. Uh-uh. It's against regulations. Field Manual C, page 112, paragraph heading license to kill, subparagraph 3. Sorry, Sullivan, but rules are rules. You know that. All right. If it wouldn't be inconvenient, would you please get me some Magnum 44s? Sure, Sullivan. I'll go get them. After all, I'm just a squire. You're the knight. You have the license to kill. I didn't do anything. 
You can't just go around shooting people like this. We've laws. No, there's a constitution that prevents look, you look, from going around look, killing people uh, like... Look, look, look. I look, haven't done anything. Look, I don't know what you did. I nothing. Or I don't know what you didn't do. All I do is follow orders. I didn't do anything. That's the whole... I didn't do anything. There's a mistake here. No. No mistakes. The FBI does not make mistakes. What they're making a mistake this these, these, these are my orders right here. Signed by Henry Lux himself. Boy, I'd sure like to keep this. Henry Lux himself. But I've got to turn this in with your prints and picture after I shoot you. Regulations. Too bad, too. Boy, would this be great to show my grandchildren, huh? Henry Lux himself. And with my name right at the top of the paper. <laughs> Makes you want to bend a regulation just once in a while. Just bend them. Break them. Say, look, take me back to Washington. I'll prove you. It's all a mistake. No. It's all a big mistake. Please. No, no, no. Rules are rules. Rules are rules. <laughs> and I have the question, did Interpol bend the rules this week? Are you familiar with the uh, the topic I'm about to talk about, Bob, the you, tweeting? You mentioned it to me, Robert, and um, I it's still a bit of a mystery to me what's going on there. There's a lot that we don't know yet, but anyway, let's just backtrack uh, well, before we the begin, day. I want to. I want to. Who explains that Canadian accent we just heard? Is that from Newfoundland? It <laughs> sounded like a Cockney accent. If you ask me, I don't know. That was a Canadian spy. Maybe that's why he's a Canadian yeah. spy <laughs> with an accent and like there that. There were more spies. They had a whole line of them. The Russian spy came in next, but we had to stop it somewhere. <laughs> anyway, if you've been following the news recently, there's been a rather disturbing piece from last week that prompted me to look into an area of the world of intrigue, which I have to admit. I knew little about, and that's Interpol. You, you hear it in the, the TV shows, especially from the 70s and the 80s. You know, you always heard Interpol mentioned somewhere mm -hmm. or another in those spy shows. Oh, like Man from Uncle and, and all those Oh, stuff, yeah. yeah. But what is Interpol? I really had no idea until I just had to look it up. Because on February 4th, a 23-year-old Saudi journalist, Hamza Kashgari, posted a number of tweets on his Twitter account referring to Muhammad. Quote, on your birthday, I will say that I have loved the rebel in you, that you've always been a source of inspiration to me, and that I do not like the halos of divinity around you. I shall not pray for you. Within hours, there were tens of thousands of Twitter responses calling Mr. Gashkari an apostate and a blasphemer, and that he should be executed. A Facebook page was created to call for his execution, with 13,000 people joining it. Unbelievable. Faring for his life, Kashgari boarded a plane for New Zealand on Sunday, just past. Unfortunately for him, it had a stopover in Malaysia, a predominantly Muslim country. Upon landing, he was arrested and repatriated back to Saudi Arabia. Malaysian police in Kuala Lumpur said Kashgari was detained at the airport, f quote, following a request made to us by Interpol, unquote. The International Police Cooperation Agency on behalf of the Saudi authorities. Now, Interpol has issued a rather vague statement, if you ask me, distancing itself from the case. To quote from Interpol, the assertion that Saudi Arabia used Interpol's system in this case is wholly misleading and erroneous. Interpol has not been involved in the case involving a Saudi blogger arrested in Malaysia and deported to Saudi Arabia. 
No Interpol channels, its national central bureaus in Kuala Lumpur or Riyadh, nor its general secretariat headquarters in Lyon, France, were involved at any time in this case. Now, that's unquote. Uh, it's difficult to determine whether or not Interpol was involved because the statement is released that's released doesn't answer the question directly. It says that it's misleading and erroneous that Saudi Arabia used Interpol's system. Erroneous, perhaps, but how is it misleading? Did any other Muslim country ask Interpol to red flag Mr. Kashgari's flight? They don't say. Interpol also refers to a Saudi blogger, which may or may not be Kashgari, who's a journalist and not primarily, primarily a blogger. There's a lot of evasion and possible misdirection in Interpol's statement, and I really suspect it. On the other hand, the Malaysian police have pretty clear have been pretty clear that they arrested the man due to Interpol's involvement at the request of Saudi Arabia. If this is true, then Interpol has a lot to answer for. Just here are some some of the facts before we continue. Some of the facts about Interpol. First of all, it's not a police force. It does not make arrests. It's primarily a central hub of information between national police forces from 190 countries. So it's a communication center. It's a communication center. It collects and relays information on individual criminals and suspects alerting police departments as to their whereabouts and movements. It's headquartered in Lyon, France, and has several offices throughout the world. In Canada, it shares offices with the RCMP in Ottawa. Canada's annual contribution to their budget is $2 million. According to Interpol's website, it does not involve itself in political or religious matters and follows the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights when determining when to get involved in disseminating information. Part of the UN, uh, UN's Declaration of Human Rights, which, by the way, is a hodgepodge of some rights and some wrongs. Oh, that's for sure. It's a nonsense document. You have the right to uh, dignity or you have the right uh, from want. Absolute nonsense. But in any case, they do pay lip service to some of what we would call rights. In the preamble, they mention the right to free speech. They also mention the right freedom of religion. Clearly, if Interpol had any involvement in the arrest of this man for simply saying that he did not want to pray for Muhammad, and if Mr. Kashkari gets executed for his beliefs, then Interpol should consider itself complicit in this execution. If such is the case, whomever was responsible for passing on to Malaysia the fact that Mr. Kashgari was on that flight to New Zealand must be held personally accountable. Malaysia should not get off scot-free either. Their extradition of Mr. Kashgari backed into the hands of the Saudis. They don't even have, by the way, a formal agreement on extradition with Saudi Arabia. And within hours, he was on a flight back to Saudi Arabia. It's unforgivable. Well, they share a common culture through the religion, don't they? Uh, they do, but there is no due process involved here unless you're talking about Interpol. So again, it brings into question whether Interpol's denial is sincere. Anyone traveling anywhere near Malaysia should take note that if at any time in their past they may have said anything about Islam, which may be taken as offensive, they may end up being executed for it, thanks to Malaysia. Besides Saudi Arabia, a despotic backward country of homophobes and misogynists, which should be ostracized, and I've said this on the show before, by the civilized world, we can now add Malaysia to the list of pariah nations. As for our own involvement in Interpol, I think our government should demand a clear statement from Interpol regarding this case. And if they find that they were involved, 
They should seriously consider restricting the information it shares with this organization for fear that innocent Canadians be rounded up for their religious or political views when they travel abroad. To be sure, on the face of it, an organization like Interpol, which has been around, by the way, since 1923, may, be very, may, may very well play an important role in the capture of real criminals and terrorists. But since many of its member nations are predominantly Muslim, including Saudi Arabia, Malaysia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and even Iran, then its commitment to non-involvement in political and religi- religious crimes, I think, is suspect. And it just gives me the heebie-jeebies Sounds to Sounds like that. a spy center to me. Like, let's, let's see who we can fool with what information. You know, you could be getting just as much false information as you could real information That's right. a network like that. That's right. It's a very scary proposition that uh, anybody, especially like you or I, could travel abroad and all of a sudden be in the hands of some despotic regime based on Interpol's um, dissemination mm. of information. Because what we say here, what anybody in Canada says, may not be allowable in, in any other country. So, you know, if you want to be radical about it, you could just go online and check out our blogs, check out the po- politics we're involved with, you know. Anybody could be suspect of something like that. Anybody in the world. And this guy only tweeted this stuff. You would think it's a harmless tweet, right? Not so. Anyway, it's near the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a break. Uh, and that's, yeah, about to put some fires out, eh? <laughs> yes, when we come back, we're going to be putting out a grease fire. And then you have something to say about uh, local politics when it comes to the police and fire. The fire in London, yep. That's right. So have a listen to these and we'll be back right after this. No, Humphrey. The Prime Minister has asked me to undertake this task, this necessary duty. And after all, we must all endeavour to do our duty. <laughs> Furthermore, Sir Mark thinks there may be votes in it. And if so, I don't intend to look a gift horse in the mouth. I put it to you, Minister, that you are looking a Trojan horse in the mouth. <laughs> but if you look closely at this gift horse, we'll find it's full of Trojans. Uh, if you had looked a Trojan horse in the mouth, Minister, you would have found Greeks inside. Hmm? <laughs> but the point is, it was the Greeks who gave the Trojan horse to the Trojans, so technically it wasn't a Trojan horse at all. It was a Greek. <laughs> Hence the tag, to mio danio set dona ferentes, which you will recall is usually and somewhat inaccurately translated as beware of Greeks bearing gifts or doubtless you would have recalled had you not attended the LSE. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure Greek tags are all very well in their way, but can we stick to the point? Sorry, sorry, Greek tags? Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. I suppose the EEC equivalent would be Beware of Greeks bearing an olive oil surplus. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, Minister. No, I take no well, the point is, Minister, that just as the Trojan horse was in fact Greek, what you describe as a Greek tag is in fact Latin. It's obvious, really. The Greeks would never suggest be wearing of themselves, <laughs> if one can use such a participle. Be wearing, that is. And it's clearly Latin, not because Timio ends in O, because the Greek first person also ends in O. Though actually there is a Greek word, Timao, meaning I honour. But the OS ending is a nominative singular termination of the second declension in Greek and an accusative plural in Latin, of course. Though actually, Danios is not only the Greek for Greek, it's also the Latin for Greek. It's very interesting, really. <laughs> yes, I take your point, Humphrey, but is it really? <laughs> log star date 5784.3 dr mccoy is endeavoring to treat the leader of a strange group of people on their planet nova millennia ago they transported themselves to earth during the time of socrates and plato 
after the death of the Greek civilization they idolized, they came to this planet and created for themselves a utopia pattern after it. And lastly, to the physician Dr. McCoy, who saved Plutonius and my spouse, this ancient collection of Greek cures, penned by Hippocrates himself. Has the Enterprise been released yet? Captain Wade. Has the Enterprise been released yet? It will be shortly. Then good day, and thank you for the presence. Not at all. But there is one final request. After my nearly fatal infection, it has become obvious to us all that we cannot afford to be without a skilled physician. Therefore, we should like you, Dr. McCoy, to remain. I'm very sorry, but that's impossible. Your duties will be extraordinarily light. You should be free to read, to meditate, to conduct research, whatever you like. You will want for nothing. The answer is no. We should like to keep it cordial, but uh, we are determined to have you say, Doctor. Dr. McCoy saved your life. I am losing patience, Captain. And you consider yourself a disciple of Plato? We managed to live in peace and harmony. Whose harmony? Yours? Plato wanted truth and beauty and, above all, justice. My dear Mr. Spark, I admit that circumstances have forced us to make a few adaptations of Plato, but ours is the most democratic society conceivable. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW Radio 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 if you'd like to join in. You can also email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org and visit our website at justrightmedia.org, where you will find a link to a new website that we're putting up there. It's in sort of a blog format, so if you have any comments that you'd like to add to any of our shows... You can just go there, listen to the show right online, and also leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Also, you can also find us on Facebook, too. Mm-hmm. Just Right Radio, I believe, is the uh, tag. So, Facebook slash Just Right Radio. So, that was um, an introduction to Greece, Plato. Yes, but we have to beware that the uh, those Platonic people did actually follow <laughs> Plato's formula. That's right. And they were the most democratic. That was Plato's whole thing. Majority rule. The state, fact, the state was it. There's all... The, 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 the intellectual headbutting that went on 2,500 years ago between Plato and Aristotle is still playing out today. That is, in fact, the divide right there. Yep. Left and right. You can bring it all the way back to those two guys, Plato and his student... Um, Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle, thank you. You know, <laughs> Pla- Plato's real name mind. wasn't uh, Plato either. No. Um, I found out it was Aristocles, O-C-L-E-S, at the end of it. So they'd, uh-huh. be, they'd be easy to confuse <laughs> yes, <laughs> if you would, used yeah. his real name. Anyway, on to Greece and over to Europe. This past week, Greece adopted austerity measures aimed at preventing it from defaulting on its debt and maintaining its membership within the euro. What followed was somewhat predictable. There was rioting in the streets, looting, vandalism, clashes with the police, and arson. Several buildings were set ablaze, and many of them banks. Who were the culprits in these acts of barbarity? Well, the students, who now have to actually pay for some of their own money to further their liberal arts degrees. The government office workers, who thought they had jobs for life and could retire comfortably at the age of 50 after only 20 years of pushing paper and producing nothing. 
The teachers who see their pensions dwindle, they took time off from teaching their students about recycling and green energy to set fire to the banks and homes of their neighbors. And the typical union thug who sees their plans for the ever-increasing minimum wage wages reduced by 22%. The rioters are, by day, the very same people who purport to be the intelligentsia of society, the teachers, the government mandarins, the labor leaders, those who say that they are for democracy and a sense of community in society, but by night they throw stones at the police and set fire to the city as they refuse to recognize that the piper must, too, get paid. Hockey riots aside, we haven't seen much destruction in this country since the Winnipeg general strike of 1919, which, not uncoincidentally, was caused by city workers' dissatisfaction with the reduction of the value of their pay due to government spending on the Great War and the resultant inflation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I found that interesting, yeah. The problems which many European countries like Greece and Italy, Portugal and Spain are facing are due to the very same cause. The Keynesian notion that governments can stimulate the economy by printing money and that governments can spend themselves out of debt. This lifting up oneself by one's bootstraps theory of economics <laughs> has been the cause of virtually every economic ill since John Maynard Keynes convinced the leaders of the earliest 20th century that a mixed economy, with the invisible hand of private capital controlled by the closed fist of government and central bank involvement, would prevent dramatic swings in the economy as witnessed with the Great Depression, which, by the way, was entirely caused by government involvement in the economy, but I'll leave that for another day. Mm -hmm. I'll leave that for another 10 shows. Now, here in Canada, Minister of State for Small Business and Tourism, Maxime Bernier, has written an excellent rebuke of Keynesian economics, published in the Financial Post on Tuesday. He writes, now this is going to be from his article. I'm going to read quite a bit of it because it's excellent, mm -hmm. by the way. John Maynard Keynes' central idea is that when you find yourself in a crisis or a recession, the best solution is to increase government spending. Government spending will sustain overall demand, put everyone back to work, and kickstart the economy. Even if you already have a high level of accumulated debt, it doesn't matter. The solution is, to, is, is too much spending is more spending. The solution to high levels of debt is more debt. The key question you have to ask yourself is this. Where does the money that government spends come from? It has to come from somewhere. A government cannot inject resources into the economy unless it has first extracted them from the private sector through taxes or put us further into debt by borrowing the money. Every time the government takes an additional dollar in taxes out of someone's pocket, that's a dollar that this person will not be able to spend or invest. Government spending goes up, private spending goes down. By the way, I'm just going to interject here. Remember, mm -hmm. a few weeks ago we talked about Frederick Bastiat's That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Unseen. Absolutely. This is that theory in practice right here. So back to Maxime Bernier, quote, it's like taking a bucket of water in the deep end of a swimming pool and emptying it in the shallow end. Great analogy. Mm -hmm. What about the Great Depression itself? Many people believe that President Roosevelt's New Deal solved the crisis, but that's not what happened. Despite all the new spending and new programs, the Depression went on and on. In 1939, Roosevelt's Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, made a startling admission. Quote, we have tried spending money, 
We are spending more than we have ever spent before, and it does not work. After eight years of this administration, we have just as much unemployment as when we started, and an enormous debt to boot, unquote. It is often said that the Second World War ended the Depression. Unemployment certainly went down because millions of men were drafted. But the situation did not improve for ordinary Americans. Most basic products were rationed during the war. The Depression actually ended after the war. That's when government spending was drastically reduced. Government spending went from $92 billion in 1945 to $29 billion in 1948, a reduction more than two-thirds. That's when the post-war prosperity started. To revive the economy, Maxime Bernier concludes, we need to give entrepreneurs the means to create wealth. This means, first of all, to restrain spending. We also need to reduce taxes. We need free trade. And finally, we need less regulation. And that from Maxime Bernier, Minister of State for Small Business and Tourism, actually a voice of reason in the Harper government at last. Thank you, Maxime Bernier. What do you think very of that? Good. Well, it yes. reminds me of you know a statement Reagan used to use a lot. The government gives you everything you want, will take away everything you have. Yes. Because that's the, its only source of where it gets what, you, what you're getting. And I think this might feed in a little bit to the subject I'll be dealing with in the next section, is what people expect from government and... You know, I, I can really sympathize with someone like Joe Fontana trying to keep his 0% tax increase against the wave of self-interest that he's fighting, you know, like within the unions mostly, because they're the ones that are organized enough to do something about it, whereas the average guy doesn't have a union that he can go down to and then march in the street and scare the politicians into doing things. And um, so I think that's one of the issues we want to deal with coming up in the next section. And just before we do, I guess we're going to this um, clip from, just to finish off your subject, actually. This is actually a clip I got from 1984. This was taped at the University of Toronto, and it featured uh, none other than Leonard Peikoff of The Objectivists, uh, NDP Jerry Kaplan. And the opening question, actually the, the event was hosted by... Um, Peter Deborah, and the opening question is uh, was asked by our own Rob Smink here in London, <laughs> who's run for Freedom Party, and this is about uh, how wealth is created, the very subject you were talking about. We'll return after this. Um, I'd like to ask Dr. Kaplan um, if he believes that the state is responsible for creating wealth and for distributing it, then why didn't some state 300 years ago create a law that said we're going to uh, build everybody cars and give them insulated homes. Or as a matter of fact, why don't third world countries do that today? Just decree a law that says we're going to create all this wealth to distribute. Um, well, of course, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Professor Ridpath, who's an economist, and I guess, so I suppose something about inflation and the false creation of extra money has something to do with it, but that's not the serious answer at all. The serious answer is that Western capitalism grew up through the 17th, 18th, 19th, and much of the 20th century by being able to batten on and feed off the countries you're talking about, you see. They managed to make us rich by making that third world even poorer than it was. And what that... And the real problem 
And the real problem, you see, of that third world is it now has no one to exploit as we exploited them. Now, I, I want... Well, the socialist side to the bitter end insists that wealth is achieved by robbery rather than by creation. And the question becomes, where did it originally come from? Now, when they landed on this continent, there were not skyscrapers. <coughs> there was no wealth. It was completely barren. You cannot possibly hold in your mind the idea that there's a fixed amount of wealth. There's like a dozen eggs or 10 trillion, whatever. And whoever got some took, got it by taking it out of the common pot because the overwhelming majority of what we have, everything beyond grabbing a piece of fruit that falls off a tree, had to be created by somebody's thought and effort. To ascribe wealth to exploitation is entirely to deny the crucial fact. Wealth is a product of the human mind. The poor in those countries which are poor and which are endemically poor are so, not because there's anything wrong with them, but because their social system is, is what ours is becoming. It thwarts, inhibits, and prevents the exercise of the individual, of creativity, of the entrepreneur. And the result is they do an unthinking routine century after century. If you really weren't concerned about the third world and you wanted them to become very wealthy, I would say let American investment go there and you would suddenly see that would be This is a crime scene. It's my crime scene, Lois. How do you expect the police to catch whoever did this? If I you don't. you insist on tainting the evidence. Somebody call a cop? Oh, finally. All right, Henderson, what's our first move? Lois, do you live here? No. Then our first move is you butt out, okay? Thank you. Morning, Clark. Anything missing? Morning, Inspector. Uh, yeah, I haven't finished going through everything yet. Fill this out and bring it down to the station. What is it? That's an inventory for stolen property. Don't forget serial numbers. Something turns up, we'll give you a call, but I wouldn't hold my breath. There's been a lot of break-ins like these in this neighborhood lately. Yeah, thanks. That's it? That's all? You're not gonna look for clues, dust for prints? Waste of time. Waste of time? Let me tell you a little story, Henderson. Shoot. It's late at night. Some sweet little old lady, probably someone's grandmother, is getting ready for bed. Suddenly, burglars burst in, knock her down, steal her life savings out from under her mattress. And you want to know why? Why? Because some cop like you was too lazy to dust for prints and the burglars were never caught. It's a good story. Thank you. I got one. You want to hear it? Shoot. Okay. That same sweet little old innocent grandmother's preparing for bed one night and... She hears burglars breaking into her house, so she rushes to the phone. She dials 911, but by the time help gets there, it's too late. Want to know why? Why? Because all the good cops were out someplace else, dusting for prints. No one can reasonably deny that police services are among the few legitimate services paid for by government. It's called a police force. 
And force is what is being governed when we use the word govern. government, isn't it, Robert? Libertarians may say uh, <laughs> we shouldn't pay the police, I don't know. Well, they might, yes. I found, uh, you know, the past week was an interesting uh, collage of comments from various people. I heard former police chief Murray Faulkner on a talk show, believe it or not, I guess he stirred a little bit of a hornet's nest over emphasizing the differences between police and firefighters. He kind of said that, you know, police work around the clock, they work on specific cases, it's a full-time job where firefighting could be fit in, into a part-time occupation that volunteers could do. And police work is not and cannot be part-time in that sense. And he was making some valid points. Don't know if I, if I went with all of them. But uh, he was reacting to the issue of uh, wage parity between police and, and firefighters, which has come up. Uh, Mayor Joe Fontana had a bit of explaining to do, having been quoted on both sides of the issue by two different sources, creating a tempest in a teapot, I think, that distracted us all from the real debate, which is that clothes shop, we own the work labor monopoly that prevents employers and taxpayers alike from having rationally financed municipal services. You know, I think, Robert, it's time that someone got up and said, listen, you don't own the work <laughs> to every union person. Nobody owns the work. Once that message is turned into law, which has to be done at the provincial level for, for most of it, our municipalities would all be in the same position as Caterpillar had Billy Ainsworth, and they'd be able to offer a wage that's a going wage in the competitive labor market. And our provincial government could do the same. But ha have we heard that in the Drummond report? <laughs> Not a mention of it. They're all talking about just capping wages where they are now, and we're going bankrupt now. And and then they're talking about capping future spending. It has, hasn't even affected us from yet. From what I've seen of the Drummond Report, it does not look very inspiring. No. But, you know, there's a bit of a difference between a union, quote, contract and an employment contract, as I found out in the past week or two. Unlike an employment contract, which is entered into consensually by both sides of the contract, a collective agreement is a little different. It creates a labor monopoly, eliminating the element of consent entirely, creating a situation where union employees falsely believe they own the work and where the employer is deprived of his right to contract with labor from another source, whether that other source is unionized or not. So you're stuck in this shotgun, married-for-life employer-employee monopoly thanks to what we call the collective agreement, right? It's, that's not a normal contract. Or as Bill Yainsworth, president of Progress Rail, would have called it, an antiquated labor contract. You just can't operate in that environment. It's never could. But we were able to despite it, not because of it. And, you know, both of our police force and fire department are unionized and effectively operate on labor monopolies. And this is why municipalities cannot control the cost of their various civil servants. Not just police and firefighters, but civil servants, hospital administrators, municipal administrators. You know, a lot of them are starting to get up into the $100,000 a year um, salaries, which will soon become commonplace, as the trend is showing, with the average income of the average taxpayer who's footing the whole bill, just a fraction of these salaries paid to the union monopolies. So... You know, if we can't end the monopoly, which is what we should do, we should at least have some kind of rational public-private wage parity in place <laughs> where public pay, you know, pay is on a level with private. Or maybe we could have wage caps for public service. I mean, that's the kind of wage parity I would want. But if we really want to know what any particular paid public servant is actually worth, the only way we'll discover that is by ending the labor monopoly. 
and allowing all other qualified and eligible applicants an opportunity to compete for work that nobody owns. Thank you very much. And this brings a larger question, too. You know, I always ask this question when, when we talk to a guest who's particularly on a municipal level, and I ask him, does he see the, the corporation of the City of London as a business or as a government? And they usually say both, and that's more or less the right answer. But they always talk about economics, balancing services against expenses and revenue. And they basically view both elements of the municipality as a matter of pragmatic economics, really. But here's the bottom line. I think on the municipal level, the authority to, to create laws is the component of that municipality that makes the municipality a government. Police may or may not fit into that function. After all, not all municipalities have their own police departments. But policing is very much a legitimate component of govern government and governing as such. So on these grounds, certainly, municipal corporations are governments. But they're not competing governments in the sense of being governments. You know, Londoners will never be able to vote for municipal councillors in Hamilton or Kitchener unless we move there and become residents of those cities. But as corporate businesses, and depending on how wisely they govern, municipalities do end up placing themselves in relatively competitive economic situations. And you could say, yeah, they do compete. Like when one municipality has a significantly lower tax rate than another. And if they do, they might attract tax-paying businesses, residents, and citizens. And usually what you always hear politicians talk about is expanding the property tax base, which is a major theme of their uh, objectives. I think that's an Achilles heel, a flaw in the structure, but that's a subject for another day. Which now brings us around to the subject of taxes themselves. You saw in that article, you got sitting in front of you there, Robert, mm -hmm. that people are becoming quite cynical about Joe Fontana's 0% tax increase plans. I think that cynicism could prove to be its own undoing, and we have to be careful with that. You know, I thought it was really nice when I heard Joe the other day say that this is not about me, Joe Fontana, it's about all of us and our future when he was talking about the 0% tax increase. And I agree with him, it is. Problem is, it becomes about Joe Fontana, the mayor, when he comes across sounding like he's saying two opposing things, right? I want a tax increase and uh, let's build a beach downtown, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, which you have to take with a grain of salt, I think, in some levels of discussion, because this is a lot of a lot of this is in the discussion stage. But he's up against a brick wall. I remember our former mayor having to face this well as well. And he's dealing with, you know, the unions again, the inflexibility that they have. They don't really care about economic conditions and political conditions, and I call that the greed factor. They will let Athens burn. They will let Rome burn before they say, we'll take a cut and pay. Some of them will go out and help set the fires. Well, sure. And, and, you know, they're so nice and polite when you hear them on the radio talking about how important their services are. And you can't argue with that because it's true. Their services are important. What they don't want us to mention is that, well, we can get that service provided by someone else. <laughs> and the service will still be there. You won't be there. That's the issue. And so if you say, let's put it all out in an open and free market, you know, to the subject of the law of supply and demand, what do you get back? Ah, you want us all to race to the bottom. That's the first thing they'll tell you, right? As if all of us are in some big hurry and rush to have someone offer us less than we make currently, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that, uh, you know, that's what we want to do. That makes a lot of sense. But the only thing that goes down in times of capitalistic prosperity is prices. 
That is what union leaders do not want to have lowered, the price of their labor. Sid Ryan accused me in my debate with him that I was always bringing the issue back to price, which again was the opposite of the fact. He was the guy that was always talking about price. But when they talk about price, they, they, they exhibit no credibility at all because they start deflecting the conversation to something like, it's about the kind of community we want or what kind of society do you want to live in, you know? Like that has anything to do with why they won't take one penny less, <laughs> right? You want to race to the bottom... Well, we're in one. It's called socialism. All unions are socialist and or communistic. Socialism is the race to the bottom. We're seeing it happen. Robert just talked about it in Greece. We're hearing about it in Ontario, and we'll be seeing it coming to London. And all socialist countries, to the degree of their collectivist fantasies, are at the bottom of the economic prosperity pile, aren't they? The more socialistic a country, the more it is at the bottom. So if that's the bottom race you want, well, then keep saying what you want. Or say, say what you're saying now, all the socialists. If there's any irony in the claim that economic freedom leads to a race for the bottom, it's the reality that the opposite is the case, both in theory and in practice. You know, socialism, communism, and all those other isms, those are all agendas with a race f to the bottom, economically. And that's what keeps them on top, politically. <laughs> Two different things. And that's where monopolized union labor is now. It's on top. So they've got nowhere to go but down. If they really believe in wage parity in any realistic application of the concept, they've got to go down. When unions say they don't want to race to the bottom, what they mean is they don't want to be where the rest of us are. And that's the issue. They don't want to end their labor monopoly. So if we're too cowardly to end the labor monopoly, you know, we could stick to our 0% tax increase. Why not just use the Caterpillar approach to all union negotiations? Pay everybody half of what they're getting now or lock them out permanently if they don't like the deal. Unfortunately, the city of London can't leave town <laughs> <laughs> like Caterpillar can. And there's the flaw in that thought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's so many other things you can do. Privatize all the recreational services. I hear people complaining about waiting pools being shut down. Are we going to save our asses when we're worried about a waiting pool? And people say, and that's the end of the world. You know, and then, of course, it's a whole situation. You can get into policing itself and a lot of the issues where the police want to keep their monopoly, not just economic, but on protecting us as well. Remember, if you go back far enough, firefighting was actually a private enterprise with competing fire departments. But that's probably a time for another show. And I think it will be because we're at the end of today's show and we'll have to go again for another week. Make sure you join us next week when we will return on our journey in the right direction. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Guess who wants to join the volunteer fire department? No, I asked you not to mention that. I didn't mention any names. All I said was, guess who? And if Mr. Drucker can guess who who is... Then you're in. But I asked you not to mention it. Mr. Douglas, you interested in joining the volunteers? Oh, he guessed your hoo-hoo. <laughs> We'd be glad to have you. Well, I'd like to. Uh, now, how do I go about joining? You gotta talk to the fire chief. Well, all right. Now, who's the... <laughs> Are you the chief? I ain't wearing this white helmet to match my shoes. Do you think he didn't join? He can't if he can pass our high standards of firefighting qualifications. What are they? What instrument do you play? Instrument? Do you play the sousaphone? 
No, uh, I can play a piano. That ain't no instrument for a marching band. Application denied. 